0: Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show that connects east and west. My name is Jason. I'm originally from sunny California now living in beautiful Beijing. Today with me is Bebe. Hi everybody find us where you get your podcasts if you like the show then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars suggestions comments anything you would like to share email us at we love the bridge at gmail.com we love the bridge uh today we have a very special guest dr jeffrey Sachs. he has a phd from harvard university but also 41 honorary I was actually really shocked when I learned that, Doctor. He is a world-renowned economics professor, a best-selling author, political commentator, president of the UN's Sustainable Solutions Development Network, and a very rare in-house name that everyone knows. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. (laughs) It's great to have you. I'd like to open with a, a question that follows up on something you said on Democracy Now! on August 30th, where you said, quote, the knowledge and possibility of leading decent lives is spreading throughout the world. But the United States, there's a resentment to this, a deep resentment, end quote. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about more about how the U.S. can work more cooperatively with other nations around the world, and is it reasonable that U.S. leaders will choose such a path?
1: Well, the U.S. should chill a little bit, <laughs> you know. Um, basically, uh, the U.S. Uh, leaders... I don't know about the public, but the the politicians, the strategists, started to get very, very worried by China's success. This is the the main issue. For a long time, the United States more or less uh, wanted China to make economic progress, but the idea was under the U.S. uh, guidance, under the U.S. uh, umbrella. Because uh, the U.S. official policy of uh, for foreign policy and uh, military policy is that the U.S. should be the dominant power. And then uh, China achieved tremendous economic, but not only economic, also technological uh, progress, uh, especially after 1980. And by the 2010s, the mood in the United States started to change. And I remember reading an article in 2015 by a former colleague of mine when I was on the faculty at Harvard, and the article said, China's rise is no longer in America's interest. I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. But I said, whoa, it's pretty obnoxious. Uh, you know, uh, for uh, a U.S. strategist to say it's it's no longer good if China continues to Uh, achieve progress. That was essentially what the article was saying. Well, I I believe firmly one part of the world should not hinder the progress of another part of the world, and that that idea that someone else's progress is your disadvantage, that zero-sum thinking, which is kind of how military strategists or uh, international relations strategists think, It's not the way I think, and it's not the way we should think, in my view. We should think that uh, what we're looking for is a world in which well-being is shared. So this is really the genesis of the current crisis, in my view, is a kind of anxiety attack that hit uh, the U.S. elites uh, in the 2010s. Of course, it's been turned into a whole narrative. China's out to undermine the world system and so forth. I don't believe that. Uh, I don't see any evidence for it. Uh, It doesn't comport with my personal knowledge and experience in China, which also goes back 41 years. Uh, And uh, so this is uh, really why your bridge is so important. There there is much too little bridging, uh, too much fear, too much talking past each other, too little dialogue, and uh, we need to get onto a different, different approach.
2: And I just want to offer a little bit of response from a common Chinese person, that when we first heard of the term China threat or threat on China, we were honestly shocked. We were like, what do we do? <laughs> we were growing, right? It just as everybody's wish to have a, you know, to live a prosperous life. People are working hard toward a better standard of living. That's normal. Every That's what everybody would do. And then all of a sudden, this term started to flow around. And I mean, from uh, our perspective, at least from my perspective, you know, China is, first of all, it's, it's big. We have a lot of problems that we need to take care of already. And also, um, China, as actually, it's one point that you mentioned in one of your lectures, China is also aging, and it's going to have a larger aging population. So I I, I mean, that's just a little bit of response from a, you know, a Chinese person. So uh, people shouldn't worry so much about it.
1: <laughs> I, I I agree with you, Bebe. You know, We all, we have enough problems to worry about that we don't have to worry about each other's success. (laughs) We should worry about each other's challenges and our own challenges and understand that, my God, uh, no place is going to run the world. Every place is going to do its best to just face the big problems uh, that we are all facing.
2: Exactly. And working together for the common challenges. You're listening to The Bridge. But yeah, when it comes to globalization, so in your book, The Ages of Globalization, um, which came out in 2020, and I want to know that with all that has been going on in the past two years, and especially with the recent D20, and how finally there's the meeting between the Chinese president and the U.S. president, can we be a little bit more optimistic now? If you were to write a add a new chapter to the book, what would be the, the tone of that new chapter?
1: You know, the 2020 book, The Ages of Globalization, is about the history of globalization. Right. Uh, which, when I when I, w- when I was uh, um, starting out uh, again as a professional economist in 1980, I thought globalization was something new happening
2: exactly for
1: the first time. Then then I learned a bit more, okay, yes, globalization came with the 19th century. Then I learned a little bit more, well, globalization, maybe you could say it came with the 16th century. Then I learned a little bit more and a little bit more. And basically, this book is about how globalization has always been a part of the <laughs> global society. The right. book actually spans about 70,000 years because it starts in the Paleolithic uh, era, uh, the prehistoric era. Um, but the point is, we've always been trading, migrating, uh, mm-hmm. exchanging goods and ideas, and we need to take a long perspective. And uh, so people who say globalization's over, well, no, uh, it's uh, this, this is uh, not over. Uh, it, the world is more interconnected than ever before. Even if there's political talk about decoupling and all the rest, don't believe the political chatter. Of course, there are important ups and downs year in, year out. There have been periods when globalization really collapsed, especially in the 1930s and 1940s. That was an era of depression and war. But uh And we want to, at all costs, avoid that. But globalization is a very deep phenomenon because we can't have the kinds of lives that we aspire to uh, living in isolation, even isolation within countries, even countries as large as 1.4 billion people like China, or the United States, 330 million. If we closed off to the world, it would be very harmful for ourselves and and for the world. And interestingly, you know, one of the one, one of the strangest and pivotal moments uh, in uh, human history was actually when China really did largely close off from the world back in the 14th century. Uh, China had uh, the the greatest navigational capacity, the largest fleets, uh, the great admiral. Uh, of uh, the Ming Dynasty, was making sea voyages from China to East Africa, all through the Indian Ocean, uh, with astoundingly large fleets. Europe was uh, complete backwater, nothing uh, at the mm. time, uh, one, one could say, compared to what China could could accomplish. And then in 1434, actually, China stopped unilaterally. Big mistake. Closed up. Uh, the emperor's uh, court, uh, may- maybe the, uh, kin- the the Mandarins said, you know, our problems are on our northern border, uh, not uh, we don't need this fleet, and so forth. And China did have the view where the Middle Kingdom, uh, or at least the Chinese emperor had the view, you know, what more could others bring? And at the end of the 18th century, when a British uh, mission came to China to, say— why don't we open? Up, why don't you open up and trade in 1795? The the court uh, under the Qing uh, dynasty at that time said we don't need anything from the rest of the world and so on. So the attitude was we've got what we need and uh, don't bother us. And of course, starting in 1839, uh, China was quite bothered because Britain came back with a military uh, fleet and uh, launched the uh, so-called first Opium Wars. Uh, And it was a disastrous uh, era for China. But the point is, closing up, really closed up China to technological advances. When China closed, it was way in the lead. But when China reopened, it was far behind. And that was because for hundreds of years, there really wasn't the kind of interchange that would have been to China's advantage. And so countries should not close to uh, other societies, to other ideas, and so on. China's great progress in the last 40, let's say 42 years of most unbelievable economic progress that the world's ever seen was basically opening up China to the world. Uh, yeah. And it's, it served uh, China very well, but I think it served the whole world very well.
2: I think China has learned its lesson when it comes to the price you pay for closing up. But whenever I think back to that part of history, I think, you know, about the Ming fleets when going all the way you know, across the ocean. There are two sides to my thoughts on it. On one side, it's unfortunate that China missed its opportunity to um, invite in and, you know, new technology and interaction with the rest of the world. But on the other side, at least it did not go to other areas and take their things and colonize other parts of the world. So, I mean, if we people can look at history this way, we did not do it. When we had the power to, you know, to colonize other areas, why would people fear so much that we would do it now? I mean, that's just, there are two sides of it when I think back to that part of history. So
1: I think there's a very, uh, very correct uh, point to that. Countries have deep political cultures and and Mm. ways of viewing the world. China's view of the world is not we're going to go conquer the world militarily. Right. Uh, it's never right. been the idea. Exactly. China's nev- never had a far-flung overseas trans-oceanic empire. Uh, right. It never aspired to one. When it had the chance, perhaps <laughs> in, in, in the 14th, 15th century, it uh, said no thanks. Uh, <laughs> we were not interested. <laughs> we got we have everything here. But the U.S. political culture is has been a culture of expansionism but really we learned it from the british because i think of england as basically starting out sometime around 1400 and and fighting pretty much nonstop for uh, almost 600 years uh, and mm-hmm. creating this global empire uh, and then in the 19 19- 40s At the end of World War II, the empire kind of changed from Britain to uh, America. And there is this political culture of global hegemony or global dominance and so forth, which is not China's idea. So the U.S. has been involved in so many wars overseas of places that Americans know nothing about, like Afghanistan. What the heck were we doing in a war in Afghanistan? for decades. This is crazy. Americans couldn't even place Afghanistan on a map, uh, much less, you know, name two cities in Afghanistan. And yet we're at war for decades in Afghanistan. And so that's the kind of overreach. And that's what I say when Americans say, well, China's very dangerous uh, and, you know, militaristic and so forth. Well, how many wars has China been in since 1980? zero, (laughs) actually. Mm -hmm. uh, None. Uh, There was a brief war with Vietnam in the 1970s uh, that was kind of a spillover of uh, actually the the U.S. wars uh, in uh, Indochina, which was a spillover of the French wars in uh, in Indochina uh, even earlier. But from 1980 onward, none. Uh, The United States, nonstop wars, all over the place, by the way, uh, in the Americas, in Africa, in Western Asia, in Central Asia. And so, it's—the U.S., as I said at the beginning, should chill a little bit.
3: Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there.
4: Online, on air, and on your phone. Take today wherever you go and stay ahead of what's changing our world. From politics and the economy to business and technology, today covers regional and international issues that affect China and the world. Keep up to date with today.
2: You're listening to The Bridge.
0: One of the things that you do is you are the president of the Sustainable Solutions Development sustainable
1: network. sustainable development solutions network S D S N
0: and uh, you are very concerned with development in the underdeveloped world or the developing world sometimes called the global south. I was wondering if you could characterize how the Belt and Road Initiative has maybe been helping in the development of the global south and maybe also how does that complement some of the U.S. initiatives and how can they work together.
1: So first, I don't like the term global south, uh, because uh, I think we should uh, take geography seriously. And it's not the south. Uh, It's more complicated than that. It's, It's actually a little bit the middle. Most of the poverty is in the equatorial and middle latitudes, whereas the places more northern and more southern tend to be more developed in the world for a lot of interesting reasons. But in any event, putting aside nomenclature, we have a very uh, economically divided world. Uh, We have about one billion people or one eighth of the world in the so-called high-income countries. We have half the world in the so-called low-income or lower-middle-income countries, so about four billion people. uh, And that leaves about three billion people in the so-called upper middle income countries of which china is a, a lead uh, economy so the world's divided and the real huge division is between the rich and and the very poor uh, about a billion people in the really poor countries with a heavy concentration in sub-saharan africa so there's a long story of why uh, Africa is as poor as it is today, uh, depends a lot on history, a lot on geography. Uh, and, uh, I've spent most of my professional life thinking about that question and trying to work to overcome it. Suffice it to say right now, it's interesting. Africa as a whole, if you add in the sub-Saharan Africa with the North Africa, uh, the population of Africa as a whole is 1.4 billion people. That's the population of China, and it's the population of India. So we have three big regions. uh, And if you add the three, that's uh, more than half the world population together. So China has had spectacular economic growth uh, over the past 40 years. India has pretty good economic growth right now, Uh, actually, uh, about the fastest in the world. It lagged behind China in taking off and it lagged in the rate. But now it's doing rather well. Uh, And then comes Africa, which is still poor and not really having this kind of rapid growth. But my view is that Africa could have the same kind of uh, dynamism that China had after 1980, especially, and that India has had, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. Same size population, very young, uh, and could be quite dynamic. But what are the problems? Well, the first problem is that China's one country, mm-hmm. and India is one country. And Africa, with the same population, is 54 Individual countries, every one of which is too small on its own to make the kind of breakthrough. So, why is it 54 countries? Well, because Africa was completely colonized by Europe after 1885, almost without an exception. And the imperial powers divided up the continent with arbitrary lines. And by the time the colonial era ended, there was Africa with 54 countries and uh, some very small, 14 of which are landlocked, which is quite tough. You know, being a landlocked province in China, you have a port, uh, but being a landlocked country uh, in Mm -hmm. Africa, you don't have a port. And so my first point is that Africa should think like a unified structure. uh, And that's why the African Union is so important in my view, because if there were one big market, it would be much easier. Also, diplomatically, Africa would be much more dynamic. Then the second point is Africa needs investment. If you look at how China developed, there was massive investment over a 40-year period. And when I say investment, it's not only the physical things, it's also investment in people. Uh, the education standards rose tremendously from 1980 to 2022. Tremendously. And so this is also what Africa needs. And then your question about the Belt and Road Initiative comes in that context, because the Belt and Road Initiative is basically a, uh, a system of financing infrastructure with China taking a lead in partner countries to say, look, we'll help with the long-term financing of roads and power systems, uh, digital uh, and other backbone networking that you need for economic development, whether it's the roads, the ports, the power grid, the uh, digital uh, system, that's what belt and road initiative is and so this is a very positive initiative in my view of course uh it needs to be uh investing in the right things uh, and i think there're two issues that uh where the belt and road initiative is getting much better than it was at the start because it's an innovation so at the very beginning basically Uh, the Chinese government asked the counterparts, what do you want, and we'll help you get it. Well, some of these countries said, we want a sports stadium in the president's hometown, uh, or we want a road to the president's hometown, or we want a rail to the president's hometown. In other words, local politics, not good economics. And China being China said, we don't interfere in the internal Decisions of other countries. Uh, If that's what their priority is, we'll help fund that. I think China should be more systematic, saying, Mm. maybe that isn't your highest priority. Let's discuss together. Let's learn how we develop so fast. What you really need is a digital backbone uh, and uh, a power grid and so forth. So, uh, more discerning would be helpful, actually. That's, you know, I don't mean crude, gross intervention. This is what we're going to do, like it or Mm -hmm. not, but rather being a little bit skeptical of lousy projects. So this this is one thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. The second thing that is important is that these investments should be green. Green. You know, China began in with the launch of the Belt and Road funding a lot of coal fired power plants because these countries said look, we need electricity. The fastest way to electricity is a coal-fired power plant. And China said, yes, you need electricity. That's basic for your development. And we know a lot about coal-fired power plants, uh, and uh, we'll help you build them. But the truth is, we don't need more coal-fired power plants. What we really need is electricity that is also environmentally safe. And so for many years, I— Kept advising the Chinese government, make it a green Belt and Road Initiative because we need the investments actually to be sustainable. And China's, re- the government's really moved in that direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's extremely positive. Five
0: hundred years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of 5,000 words, which for the next two and a half millennia would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the sayings of Laozi and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle, and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The Sayings of Laozi is available on all major podcast platforms.
2: You're listening to The Bridge. Can I follow up with a question? Now, whenever we hear, whenever we hear about the Belt and Road Initiative here in China... The term "win-win" situation always comes with it. From our understanding, this is almost an intrinsic element of the initiative. Do you see it that way? I mean, does the the West in general see it that way?
1: Well, first of all, the, the United States leaders and the leaders in Europe view the Belt and Road Initiative basically in a hostile way, uh, because uh, again, if you have a zero-sum view of the world, that one country's benefit is our loss. Um, Then the U.S. says, oh, China's gaining diplomatic leverage uh, through this. And that's bad for us because we want to be the ones running the show. Uh, And then Europe is uh, saying, Africa's our backyard. What's China doing funding these things? Well, you can see this is the wrong way to think about things. Again, it's how a Geo strategist thinks about things. It's not how a development economist thinks about things. A development economist says, is this good for development? Right. Uh, and uh, that's the right uh, approach. Then, you know, it, it, as part of the narrative in the West, so-called, uh, again, I don't like these terms. They don't make any sense on the map. But in, in any event, as part of the narrative, uh, the U.S. said, oh, the Belt and Road's initiative is terrible. It's it's a debt trap for developing countries. You know, they borrow from China, then they're going to get in terrible trouble. Well, this is just a kind of propaganda. Of course, if the investments are bad, it's possible uh, that they get in trouble. If the investments are good, they lead to economic development. So uh, I'm all in favor of uh, backing good, strong investments. Really, countries need green electrification, they need fast rail they need uh, digital access and so forth and those investments won't go belly up those will be mm. good investments so the narrative is rather negative outside but that's a kind of manipulation or political view not really a serious view from oh. the point of view you know that you asked the relationship of this program for china and uh, and the uh, country that is the uh, place of the investment, this will be win-win if the investments are well-designed and well-implemented. Because mm-hmm. China will benefit as both uh, the one that has made a loan. Also, of course, China will export a lot of the infrastructure the technology. Right. Because that's mm-hmm. part of the point, which is China says, we can help you build this stuff and finance it. You'll pay us back over time. That's win-win mm-hmm. uh, if, it's, exactly. if it's a good project.
2: In, in your opinion, do you think China is overextending itself with a Belt and Road Initiative?
1: No. Uh, no. I think China, I think it's not a simple initiative, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, I think China's gaining experience, frankly. Uh, right. You know, the, the U.S., made a lot of investments in developing countries that went bad. Uh, that happened uh, many times. Uh, China has made some bad investments as well. Uh, the initiative, I think, was absolutely in good faith as a win-win initiative. Good for the Chinese economy, good for Chinese diplomacy, good for the recipient countries. But I think that the quality of the investments needs needed to be improved from the beginning uh, again the, the basic way that it worked was was as i described it which is china asked the recipient country what do you want uh, and uh, too many times it was as i said you know something that was really for local <laughs> politics not for good long term development so i think mm-hmm. that uh, there's learning going on and the program is getting better but i hope china continues it I hope it, it indeed it expands it, uh, because I think it's really important. The idea is completely correct, which is that we need an era of infrastructure investment in developing countries. That's the backbone for long-term development. And um, China is typically the low-cost producer of a lot of that infrastructure. And so it can really make a contribution for the recipient countries.
2: Thank you. It's very assuring to hear that from you.
4: (laughs) Welcome to My Stories of Chinese Characters, season two. I'm Uncle Han Si. This season we will travel to different destinations and experience the different sceneries throughout the year. This season we will taste delicious foods. Delicious, how sure. Feel the delicacy of Chinese well, silk. Some people say that this is the world's first computer because each one of these is an instruction. And enjoy the local architectures. Yes, it's a big house. Changzhou's old. We will feel a sense of camaraderie on the slow train. Love love. And feel the excitement of the snowfields. Yes! Yes! Yeah. yes, yes, yes! I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will take you to see a different China from the perspective of Chinese characters. Meet us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms, or on our website, radio.cgtn.com.
2: listening to the bridge
0: Dr Sachs you've said quote we need a massive campaign of awareness understanding economic justice to say that we need massive increase of development finance it is urgent you've also said the words a trillion dollars a year is this something that the G20 leaders are able to initiate who is in a position to provide this
1: kind of investment first let me say when you're a macroeconomist a uh, trillion dollars is mm, all right, not so much. it's not you know uh, it it it's a lot of money, but the world output is a hundred trillion dollars a year, so I think in units of one percent of world output uh, and an extra one percent of world output to face up to challenges like ensuring in poor countries that all the kids are in school or. Ensuring that everybody has basic health coverage, uh, or ensuring that everybody has access to safe water and sanitation, or to electricity, or to a digital grid—it's not. That's not a lot to do. That's not a stretch beyond what we should do. So, a trillion dollars incremental beyond what we're doing right now each year is a pretty reasonable target for the next few years. Now, in absolute terms, it's a lot of money. And uh, our governments are, uh, too many governments, not very generous. Um, and the United States, when COVID hit, had several emergency packages for the U.S. that amounted to $6 trillion or $7 trillion, if you add up across the three major pieces of legislation. So, yeah, the the US managed the six or seven trillion dollars emergency aid, but almost none of it was for anyone outside the United States. It was all for the domestic purposes. So, raising an extra trillion for poor countries is not the simplest thing in the world. And I am advocating that it basically should come out of the so called development finance institutions like the World Bank or the China created Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank or the Asian Development Bank and other bodies like that those institutions currently lend if you add up all of them together something around 150 billion a year but i'm saying it should be around a trillion a year and uh, then the question is well how could they do so much more business And the basic thing that those institutions do is that they're banks. A bank is an intermediary. A bank doesn't create its own money. A bank either borrows money from the capital markets and then lends it, or it borrows it from depositors and then lends it. And so we need these development finance institutions to borrow from the international capital markets, and then lend to their members. And then you say, well, what do we need that for? Why don't those countries just borrow on their own? And it's a little bit of financial magic, but the uh, these development finance institutions are able to borrow on very good terms, so-called AAA terms. So they get their funds at low interest rates. And because of that, they can lend at low interest rates to their members. And that's the advantage, because if their members, say a poor country, uh, tried to go out to borrow on its own, they would face very high interest rates if they went to the private capital markets. But if they go to the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, they can get the same loan at a low interest rate. And, and then comes... Uh, Question, well, how does AIIB, this bank, land at a low interest rate when the capital markets would demand a high interest rate? And that comes to some financial engineering. But one of the reasons is that the multilateral institutions like that bank um, have backing of governments. So the governments say, go out and borrow. And if you have a problem, we back you up. So the governments are at some risk if these development finance institutions do more business. But I think the risk is quite low if, like I keep emphasizing, they're making loans that are for really good purposes, uh, like education, healthcare, clean energy, uh, safe water and sanitation, digital access. I say go for it. Oh, yeah.
3: Dunhuang, situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Dunhuang, a place born in legends. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe to the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.
2: to the bridge. I have a few important questions, but I'm going to squeeze this in about poverty alleviation. Now, I think China has a lot of experiences to offer when it comes to tackling poverty. But China's method is I mean, it's targeted and it's from the bottom up, like literally down to the village, the county, and even the household level, to see what the local resources, uh, you know, has to offer, what kind of culture it has, you know, what the family, what's like the target, basically custom-made plans for uh, poverty alleviation. And I have actually some numbers here. It's from ChinaFocus.com in a conversation with uh, Mrs. Beat Trankman a uh, UNDP resident representative in China, she said since 2017, about 775,000 civil servants has been sent to all the registered poor villages to support the local authorities in implementing these measures to reduce poverty and also to monitor its progress. So I'm wondering, even with, let's say the funding is in place, um, will there be enough human resource to actually put the money into good use. Because I think for China, that's a huge part of uh, why it has worked over the
1: decades. It's a good question. And uh, such capacity needs to be developed over time. It wasn't in place starting in 1980 uh, Mm -hmm. or 85. Um, A lot was developed over this 40 year period of massive reduction of poverty. But the reduction of poverty in China came in many different ways partly was general economic orientation. Uh, Mm. When Deng Xiaoping said we should be an open economy uh, and uh, have market economy and so forth, this was a general system design. So that was one thing. Then the government invested very heavily in the basic infrastructure, tens of thousands of kilometers of paved roads and highways. A, a, an intercity uh, fast rail system of tens of thousands of kilometers built in the 1990s. Uh, in many urban centers, a, a metro system or public transport system was built. The power grid was built. The digital grid was built, mostly by state enterprises or direct public investment, sometimes also by private uh, investors in Certain cases like parts of the digital system. But the basic point was huge investments of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Then came huge public investments in education. Uh, the years of schooling went up a lot, uh, especially in rural areas. Uh, higher education was, of course, really fostered. The healthcare system was very rudimentary in 1980. The barefoot doctors in the villages, uh, and uh, there was a over 40-year period building a, a, a quite complicated healthcare care system. So a lot of those big investments were taken. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the business environment was favorable, the globalization, the rapid economic growth, all of that contributed to rising incomes and livelihoods. So you had the government side, you had the private side, and then the poverty rates came down significantly. And then the government said, we're going to go to zero by Mm.
2: 2020.
1: And uh, I was involved uh, a little bit in some of the the efforts, for example, uh, in the uh, Western China development efforts, because it was noticed in the... Early years of the new century, 21st century, that while the opening up had really worked to propel China, the big gains were in the coastal regions,
3: right. and
1: the western regions were lagging. So they said, Professor Sachs, could you go visit western China for during a couple of years and make recommendations? And this is one of the things I was very happy to do, uh, mm. roughly 20 years ago. But it means that there was lots of fine tuning. And especially mm. in the 2010s, the fine-tuning was, like you said, really down to the local level. In fact, I went to what was counted as one of the poorest counties of the country, uh, Ningxia Autonomous Region, uh, mm. with a, uh, an anti-poverty mission uh, during the 2010s. Um, to, and it was very specific. They knew each household. Uh, And what were the problems? And we went household to household with the local officials. By the way, there was still poverty, but it was at a level much above the poverty that I knew in Africa, because we go to the small house of an elderly woman and she had electricity and a television set. So (laughs) it was was already at a level beyond uh, extreme poverty. Um, All of this is to say that The reduction of poverty in China was a 40-year-long process. Absolutely Mm. remarkable because roughly a billion people came out of poverty. Uh, And that's an unprecedented historical accomplishment. But many things went into it. And Mm. it wasn't just one year. It was two generations uh, of uh, rapid progress, but over 40 years And so when I think about Africa, I'm also thinking about a 40-year process. And I often say, learn from China's experience, Mm -hmm. develop the cotters that you need to do this, develop the planning mechanisms that you need to do this, Uh, connect with the Belt and Road Initiative for some financing of the long-term infrastructure. But Mm -hmm. the answer to your question is, yes, of course, those skills are needed but they don't have to be there at the beginning. They they get developed along the way.
3: Dive into the sports world with Sideline Story, our weekly podcast that brings you the most up-to-date game analysis and news from the latest sports action. Subscribe to Sideline Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever you listen to your podcast.
4: Want to learn about world affairs in a more laid back and accessible manner? Join insiders, experts, and analysts in the casual setting of the Chat Lounge to hear their personal experiences and opinions on major events and hot issues. Subscribe to Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
2: You're listening to The Bridge.
0: Could I add one last, 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 last question? The baby's going to, we really wanted question. to talk to you. We've been, <laughs> both of us are overeager. Sorry to Dr. Sachs, yes. for taking so much of your <laughs> time. You. Um, we are The Bridge and we do hope to connect, you know, the West, I'm sorry that we have to use that term with uh, our Chinese audience also. And I was wondering, are you hopeful that the United States and China can work together in some of these global partnerships to alleviate poverty around the world? Uh,
1: Of course, we should work together. And I want to see some real projects of working together. For example, China and the US and Europe should say to leaders in Africa, especially of the African Union, will help you. You have to do the lead, but will help you on universal access to digital services, universal access to electrification, uh, kids in school, and so forth. And if this was viewed not as some great struggle between the U.S. and China over influence, but rather as a cooperative activity, It would be fantastic. And I have some specific projects in mind that I'm really trying to emphasize. Uh, One that is a a famous project uh, called uh, Grand Inga, which is uh, on the lower Congo River, uh, a massive hydroelectric power potential for the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a country of almost 100 million people. But the vast majority don't have electricity. And here's this great hydropower potential that could provide electrification. And it's a pretty big price tag, $30 to $50 billion investment to get uh, 30 to 50 gigawatts of uh, hydropower, Gigawatt. roughly rough rough numbers, big, big, big potential. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for an impoverished country, it's, it's uh, too much and so i recommended ah let's mobilize a global development project it will repay by the way because uh, the electricity will really generate economic development but you need some backers to that and that's a kind of project where the us europe and china really could work together effectively
2: Can I squeeze in one last question? I promise I won't ask anymore.
1: The last, last question.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because this is almost like my, I'm personally curious when it comes to scarcity. Now, growing up, we've, I think we were taught in a way that, you know, there's limited Everything. Everything is limited from time to resources. And um, and that mentality kind of creates this competition in almost in our subconscious mind. But then uh, in the past few years, in a few books that I read, these authors told me they opened literally opened up my mind and told me that this is a scarcity mindset. It's the mentality of of scarcity. They said that there isn't enough resources on this planet for everybody. For At least for our survival and decent living. And the problem is mostly with this distribution, um, how we are dividing up all these resources. Um, So I want to ask your opinion on this mentality of scarcity, this fear that we will run out of stuff for ourselves versus real scarcity. Should we be in fear that we won't have enough?
1: There there are definitely uh, things that are scarce, uh, which is uh, our the biodiversity on the planet, uh, the capacity of our forests and our fisheries to uh, provide uh, um, the things that we love from those resources, the ability of the atmosphere to hold uh, our greenhouse gas emissions and so forth. On the other hand, there is also know-how that allows us to do much better with the resources that we have. Mm-hmm. So scarcity is a funny thing. If if we just operate the way we're operating right now, we have real scarcity because mm-hmm. we're wasting a lot or producing things in a very destructive way or using coal and uh, oil and uh, natural gas or methane to produce our energy and creating climate change.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: is there scarcity of energy per se? No, because the amount of solar power or wind power, green energy that we could tap is vast. So we're not running out of sunshine. We're not running out of wind. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> uh, and uh, But we are uh, running out of space for the CO2 in the atmosphere in mm-hmm. a safe way. So we need to be smart about how we use our resources. That's what sustainability is about that we need to manage the resources in a smart way mm-hmm. we need to get the most out of our resources by using them efficiently uh, not in a wasteful way we should not continue wasting or losing 30 percent of the post-harvest uh, or throwing out 40 percent of our food uh, mm-hmm. and then wondering what's what's the problem you know right so This is the real issue that we need to look where are the limits real Mm. and what do we do about that? So the clearest example, just in summary, is we have a limit on how much coal, oil and gas we can burn, Mm. because as we burn those fossil fuels, we're dangerously warming the planet. That doesn't mean that the scarcity is on energy, the scarcity is on fossil fuel use. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do now is move quickly to wind, solar, nuclear, other kinds of energy that are safe to use for the environment. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see, oh, the scarcity wasn't our uh, general ability to have electricity, our scarcity was specific ways that we were doing it. The same is really true in land use and food production as well. This is Mm. the time when we really need to be smart about how we produce things so that we're producing them in a sustainable way.
2: So using limited resources in smarter ways, coming up with better innovation. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so
0: much for your time, Doctor and Professor Sachs.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks
1: a lot. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for uh, having me as, as a guest on the bridge.
2: I really appreciate
1: your voice. Be- thanks a lot. Very nice. Great to be with you. Great to yes. uh, meet and uh, congratulations on what you're doing, which is wonderful.
2: Thank you. Thanks thank you for thank your you. time. Thank you. Take you. care, B- Professor B- bye, Sachs. bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>